We're almost to the finish line. Friends, we've been doing the longest series, well, no, the longest series since the last series we did. In fact, this series is a pause in another series that we're going back to apparently next week. So we've got to the finish line, and then we're going to start, we're going to resume a different race. So well done. Uh, this, uh, this series is the resurrection of the rest of life, and it, it, the inspiration for the series really comes from the fact that once we walk out of these doors, we are assaulted by a culture, we are assaulted by a world that says, everything that you do in there, that's fine, but don't let it seep out. Don't let your religion or your faith or whatever it is that you do behind those silly doors, don't let it seep out into the rest of your life because if you do, it'll be very uncomfortable for us and we're going to be the kinds of people who are going to make you feel bad for doing it. We don't want to be, we don't want to see it. We don't want to see it. And so the resurrection of the rest of life is reclaiming the, the ground that the culture has taken. Because Jesus is raised, we have a different kind of life. Everything in life, parenting, uh, eating, uh, exercising, everything that you do in life is a part of God's resurrection life for you. And we need to be reminded of that. And this series is designed to remind us of that. It does not matter what corner of life we're talking about. There is no distinction between the secular and the sacred. The sacred is all in all. The life of Christ pervades the world. And when we exit these doors, we are bringing that life to the world. This is the final uh, installment in that series. And this sermon is feasting and celebration. Appropriately, we are ending. And so right after the service, we're going to have 50 pizzas out there and hot fudge Sundays. I'm just kidding. We're not. If I had been on my game, we would have been. When Erin got to church today, she brought me a jelly-filled donut from Krispy Kreme. My plan was to just sort of eat it, take bites in the middle of the sermon to mess with you. Um, But I'm not going to do that because that seems a bit uncouth. Feasting and celebration, what is it? Well, it's it's pretty simple. It's something that human beings do naturally. Feasting, celebration is what we do when we look back and we take stock of what's happened and we celebrate. Now, this is not something that, I mean, sometimes it involves religion, and we'll talk a little bit about that, but it doesn't have to. Human beings will do this no matter what. Uh, the, The prime example, the simplest example is birthdays. Every year we celebrate a birthday, and what is that really about? It's about looking back and saying, made it another year. Well done. For some of you, that's an accomplishment. For some of you, it's, uh, it's, it's getting a little bit thin. You've had a few close scrapes. For some of us, it's just, you know, we're starting to start to feel it. For kids, it's like, party! But we're looking back and we're taking stock of what's happened and we're saying, this is good, this is great. Sometimes, sometimes we're looking back and we're taking stock and we're saying, that was tough. That was hard, but we made it! We're here! Great! Your annual company party. You're getting there and you, and you know, the boss stands up and he says, record profits this year. Well done, guys. Good job. Look at all the great things that you did. I'm so proud of you. Or the company uh, boss gets up and he says, well, okay, had to, had to cut a few uh, corners here and there. Um, but we're still here. We're still going to make it. We're still thriving. And we can celebrate that. We can, we can give thanks for that. We can have a party for that. Well, There's a question, and the question I've already alluded to. What does it mean to feast or to celebrate Christianly? 
What does it mean to be a Christian who goes out of these doors and participates in feasts and celebrations that, by all accounts, don't appear to have anything to do with God at all? And I, I think a part of the, the answer to that, and um, on your note seats, uh, we're going to say here, um, answer number one, we feast to God. That's a little bit of a, of a part of that. And we get a little of that when we think about our explicitly religious holidays. So for Christians, that's obviously Christmas, Easter, uh, to some extent, Thanksgiving. But when, for Christians, when we get to Christmas or Easter, we're looking back at something God has done. And so when we're celebrating, we're celebrating the coming of the king, we're celebrating his resurrection, we're, we're explicitly saying, God, thank you. We praise you for this thing that's happened. And so a surface-level answer to the question of what it means to feast and celebrate Christianly is to look back and say, this year, this year came from God. God, thank you that we made it another year. God, we praise you for your provision this year. God, these record profits that the company has earned, that is because of your blessing. And we thank you and praise you for it. And so uh, we don't, we don't get that um, just out of thin air. I mean, that's the tradition of God's people throughout history. In fact, if you look at the, um, the Levitical laws in the Torah, the first five books of the Bible, when um, God institutes the feasts, he says things like, you're going to have a feast, an, a harvest of ingathering. You've planted your crops, you've had a, a, a wonderful harvest, you're bringing it in, and then you will have a feast to God, to me, to Yahweh. You're going to look at what you've done, and you're going to say, it wasn't just the sun and the rain, it was my provision of sun and rain. My provision of the hard work and the labor and the tilling of the land. I have made this happen for you. And so you are going to be grateful to me. I am going to be the start, the finish, the point of your feasting, of your celebration. In fact, we notice that most of the sacrificing that takes place in the Jewish calendar throughout the year in the temple takes place during festivals, annual festivals. And there's a reason for this. When, uh, when you get together and you, 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 uh, you know, kill the, the beast and you pour out the blood and you put it on the altar and you light it on fire, well, the smell is really good. And it's like you're having a barbecue with God. And I, I've given you the text before, but it is true. You'll hear over and over in the Old Testament, a pleasing aroma to the Lord. God's smelling the, 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 uh, the, the baking beef or lamb and God's enjoying the celebration with you. And so answer number one to the question, how do we feast Christianly, is we do it to God. But I want to suggest to you that if we investigate um, in the Gospel of John specifically, we can get a deeper and fuller answer to this question of what it means to feast and celebrate Christianly. I haven't put um, specific texts here because we're going to have to sort of do a a bird's eye view on a number of texts in John, John 6 through 10. Um, but the reason for this is because John is unique amongst the gospel writers in that he locates a number of Jesus' signs and teachings in the midst of very specific festivals of Israel. Uh, there's at least five uh, that I found instances where John says, and it was the feast of this. And he points it out. And then he tells us what Jesus did uh, or said. And I think if we take a look at that, we're going to get a sense for what it is that John is trying to bring out about not just ultimately Jewish festivals, but also all feasts, all human celebration that's done Christianly. Let me give you the answer before we get there. 
The second thing in your note sheet says John's view of the Jewish festivals. So it's the gospel writer John, he, he uh, gives a specific context that Jesus is doing or saying things at festivals because he wants us to understand something about these feasts, these celebrations. And that's this. These feasts, these celebrations, this is in your note sheets, they do not only remind Israel of God's involvement in her past. They point forward to her messianic, eschatological future. Messianic, eschatological. Eschatological is E-S-C-H-A-T-O-L-O-G-I-C-A-L. Messianic indicating that the, the people of Israel are looking forward to a Messiah, an agent of God who is going to come and rescue them. And eschatological referring to the end of days, the day of the Lord in Daniel, or, in Daniel, or on that day, um, what we think of as the end of time, and for Christians, when Jesus comes back and consummates all things. And so in John's view of the Jewish festivals, they do not only remind Israel of what God's done back then, but they point her forward to a messianic, a Messiah-brought, eschatological, that's end times, future. And we're going to look at three examples of that in the Gospel of John to see how it plays out. The first is the, uh, the Feast of Passover. John specifically mentions Passover three times. Once at the beginning of uh, Jesus' ministry after he turns water into wine at Cana. Uh, once in the middle, which is what we're going to look at. And then once at the end, we know that Jesus was crucified at the end of Passover week. Uh, but we're going to look specifically at the second use of uh, the Passover, the second time that uh, Jesus speaks and does signs at Passover. Now again, we're looking for uh, the, the messianic eschatological future. Sometimes in scripture we'll see uh, the Passover referred to as the Feast of Unleavened Bread. That's because in the Jewish calendar there's many different festivals and sometimes by, the, by Jesus' day they've, they've put a lot of them together. And so basically what happens at Passover is it's a week-long celebration, right? Seven days. And on those seven days, uh, Jews do not eat any uh, bread with yeast, uh, which sounds awful. Um, I, 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 you know, I have, a, I have a couple of Jewish friends and I tried the um, matzo. Is it matzo? Yeah, it's terrible. It's like a cracker without the flavor. Um, and there was a reason that they would eat that. They, they were being reminded of the fact that before the Passover, so the Jews are stuck in, in Egypt, in bondage, and God's going to set them free. But before God does that, they're going to wait. And they don't know when it's going to happen, and they've got to be ready to go at any time. They don't have enough time to put yeast in the bread and wait for it to, to rise. They've got to be able to grab that bread out of the oven and take off. And so to celebrate that, we have seven days where we're not going to have any bread with yeast in it. Now, by the time of Jesus' day, um, things, you know, they, they, so the Jews were there. They had their unleavened bread. They celebrate the Passover. They put the lamb's blood on their doorpost. The angel of death passes over the Israelites, and then they're liberated out of Egypt, and they run away. And they get into the wilderness, and what happens? They start to get hungry, right? The bread theme here. They start to get hungry, and they're thinking, what are we going to eat? And as you'll recall, God provides manna from heaven. The bread of heaven is what the rabbis uh, will eventually call manna. God uh, provides for the Israelites. 
And so they live in the wilderness for 40 years, living by God's provision. And then Joshua leads them into the promised land. And we get this in Joshua 5, 10 to 12. Um, This, by the way, was a reading that would have taken place at the temple in Jesus' day. Jesus would have have heard this. uh, Jews would have heard this every year at Passover. It's uh, page 118 in your pew Bibles if you want to follow. This is Joshua 5, 10 to 12. Now the children of Israel camped in Gilgal and kept the Passover on the 14th day of the month at twilight on the plains of Jericho. And they ate the produce of, of the land on the day after the Passover, unleavened bread and parched grain on the very same day. So they celebrate their Passover. They've entered into the land. They, they celebrate Passover. And then this happens. Then the manna ceased on the day after they had eaten the produce of the land. And the children of Israel no longer had manna, but they ate the food of the land, the fat of the land of Canaan. So they've been given provision uh, of manna. They enter into the promised land. They celebrate the Passover. And then manna stops because now the people of Israel can make their own bread. Well, by the time of Jesus' day, this is no longer considered a good thing. Because by the time of Jesus' day, the Jews live in, under oppression from the Roman Empire. Um, they are, uh, well, they're honestly, they're desperate for manna again. They're tired of having to be slaves again, making their own bread. And they're looking forward to a day when that won't happen again. Um, we even have uh, a, a text from around the first century. It's called uh, To Baruch. And it's a, it's a strange text, but it was, um, it's a Jewish text from around the time when Jesus was um, around. And it tells us this about the, Messian, the day of the Messiah, when the Messiah comes. It says, On that day, quote, The treasury of manna shall again descend from on high, and they, the, the people of Israel, will eat of it in those years, because these are they who have come to the consummation of time. So remember, Jesus is hearing this. At the, you know, all the Jews of Jesus' day are hearing us at the temple. They're tired of having to do their own bread. They're sick of it. They're looking forward to the day of the Messiah when bread will rain from heaven. The bread of heaven will come down. Manna will, will uh, shower over them. And now listen to John. This is John 6, uh, 4 to 14. It's uh, page 563 in your pew Bible if you want to follow along. Listen to what John does. He says, Now the Passover, a feast of the Jews, was near. Then Jesus lifted up his eyes and said to Philip, one of his disciples, Where are we going to buy bread that these guys can eat? But Jesus said this to test him. uh, For he knew himself what he would do. And Philip answered, 200 denarii worth of bread is not sufficient that every one of them could even have a little then one of Jesus' disciples, Andrew, Simon Peter's brother, said to him, There's a boy here, a lad who has five barley loaves and two small fish. But what's that among so many? Then Jesus said, Make the people sit down. Now there was much grass in the place, and so the men, numbering 5,000, sat down. Uh, 5,000 guys, there were also women and children, so a lot of people. Um, and Jesus took the loaves, and when he had given thanks, he distributed them to the disciples, and the disciples to those sitting down, and likewise of the fish, as much as they wanted. And when they were filled, he said to his disciples, Gather, gather up what remains, so that nothing's lost. They gathered, gathered them up and filled twelve baskets with the fragments of the five barley loaves, which were left over by those who had eaten. Then the people who were there, who had seen the sign that Jesus did, said, This is truly the prophet 
who has come into the world. They see this sign. It's Passover time. They're looking for the bread of heaven. Suddenly, bread, this amazing amount of bread shows up, and these people say, this man is the prophet, maybe the Messiah. And then in verse 35, Jesus said to them, I am the bread of life. He who comes to me shall never hunger, and he who believes in me shall never thirst. By setting this teaching and this sign, by reminding us that it's taking place during Passover, by pointing that out to us, John does two things. The feast of Passover not only points back to when God rescued the people from Israel, but it also pushes them to look forward into a future that they're desperate for, when once again manna is going to come from heaven. Once again, finally, the Messiah is going to come, set up his kingdom on earth. Justice shall reign. The people shall be where they ought to be, and they will eat from God's own hands. John reminds us of all this, and then Jesus says, I am the bread of life. I am the bread of heaven. Come to me, you who believe, and you will never hunger again. There's three festivals in John. Uh, That was the Passover. The next festival is the Feast of Tabernacles, or booths, or I think it would be more helpful for us in the 21st century, huts, or yurts, or lean-tos, or teepees. The Feast of Tabernacles was a time, it was actually really popular in Israel, because they liked to camp. They thought that was a lot of fun. Um, Side note, uh, I hate the outdoors and all of nature, um, but uh, Adventure Mountain, and we really were roughing it. Uh, Zach kind of underplayed that a little bit. He was like, yeah, it's kind of, no, it was horrible. Um, we actually had to, to walk um, three to four miles just to go to the bathroom and take a shower, uh, just hiking uphill both ways. It was really, really frustrating. Um, and, yet, and yet, because that place is special, I really enjoyed myself, which should tell you um, how awesome our, our, our week was. But the people of uh, Israel in... Um, and up to Jesus' day, they loved camping. And so during the, uh, the Feast of Tabernacles, they would come to Jerusalem and they would be outside the walls and they would construct little, little huts that they would live in. They'd, they'd live on the ground and there were um, some different uh, f- fruits and vegetables that, that grew in the wilderness that they would eat during this time. And it was to commemorate the time that the Israelites spent in the wilderness. Um, they... <laughs> Yeah, so they like that. Um, sounds terrible to me. But there were parts of the Feast of Tabernacles that I think are pretty cool. Um, they had two specific rituals that I think are really neat. Um, they would go in during the day to uh, the, the center of Jerusalem, and there's a pool called uh, Shiloam Siloam, and they would uh, take this big golden jug, and they would fill it up with water. And then a whole throng of people would, would follow behind as they you know, lifted this jug and they climbed up the temple mount and they walked up uh, to the altar and they just dumped this huge uh, jug of water over the altar and the water would, like, would pour out from the altar and it would, it would run down temple mount and you could sort of dip your fingers in it. And then when the sun went down, there was um, four huge... Uh, I guess you could call them candles, more like torches maybe. They were so tall that the, uh, the rabbis who lit them had to climb up on ladders. And there were bowls that were filled with oil, just, just tons and tons of oil. And they would light it on fire. Uh, as soon as the sun went down, all the lights were out, so it would be totally dark. And then four, four rabbis, uh, four priests would get up there and it, simultaneously they'd light them. 
And as soon as they lit them, then they'd take these torches from all these other priests, and they would light those. And so there'd be this huge glow coming out from the temple in Jerusalem. And everyone uh, in Jerusalem would be able to see it, and it would light up the whole city. Uh, these, these, during the festival of huts or, or tabernacles or booths, they did this every day for seven days. And on the eighth day, they'd stop. And there would be no water over the altar, and there would be no fire from Jerusalem. If you uh, wanted to follow in Zechariah 14, 6 to 9, in your pew Bibles, it's page 503. Zechariah the prophet um, in the exilic period says, On that day, this is the, uh, the day of the Lord, you know, the end of days, there will be no light. All the splendid things of the sky will disappear. On one day, known to the Lord, Yahweh, there will be neither day nor night, but at evening time, there will be light. And on that day, living water will flow out from Jerusalem, half of it to the Dead Sea and half of it to the Mediterranean. This will happen in the summer and the fall. And Yahweh God will become king over all the lands. And on that day, Yahweh God will be one. And Yahweh's name will be one, meaning universally proclaimed over the earth. On that day, water is going to pour out from the altar at Jerusalem, and it's going to feed the whole world fresh water. And on that day, light will come from God himself as he sits on his throne, and there will be no more darkness. And the whole world will look, and they'll say, that's the real God. He's the one we want to follow. That's what's going to happen on that day, the day of the Lord. The Jews, they, they did these two rituals, the water ritual and the lighting of the torch ritual, to celebrate, to anticipate, to hope for this day. Seven days they did it, day after day after day after day, and on the eighth they stopped. Why? Because it hadn't happened yet. Because God isn't shining from his throne. Because water doesn't proceed from Jerusalem. Because we are still waiting, they thought. These rituals symbolically acted out what would happen in the time of messianic, eschatological fulfillment. And now let's read John 7 to 8. On your pew Bibles, it's page 565, if you want to follow, starting in verse 37. On the last day, the eighth day, the great day, of the feast, and earlier he tells us it's the feast of tabernacles or huts. Jesus stood and cried out, saying, If anyone thirsts, let him come to me and drink. He who believes in me, as the scripture said, out of his heart will flow living water. Rivers of living water. But this he spoke concerning the Spirit, whom those believing in him would receive, for the Holy Spirit was not yet given, because Jesus was not yet glorified. Glorified meaning crucified and raised. Therefore, many from the crowd, when they heard this saying, said, Truly this is the prophet. If he can do that, make living water flow out of our hearts, then the day has come. And then later in, uh, in 8.12, chapter 8, uh, verse 12, we read this. Jesus then spoke again to them, saying, I am the light of the world. He who follows me shall not walk in darkness, but have the light of life. Seven days. The waters have been trickling down the altar. The big torches have been 
running around lighting up Jerusalem. The eighth day, it's all stopped. And you can imagine, you can imagine the people looking up and seeing the dry altar and having to kind of peer because there's very little light. And Jesus says these two things. He says, I am if anyone, thirsts, uh, if anyone thirsts, come to me and drink. He who believes in me, out of his heart will flow rivers of living water. And then he says, I am the light of the world. If you follow me, there is no darkness. It's daylight for all time. Jesus is saying, this festival, it's pointing back, it's reminding us of, of this feast, it's reminding us of what happened. Yes, God did these things. But the festival is also pointing forward. It's reminding us of something. It's, it's reminding us of a day when God's going to fulfill everything and make it all right. And guess what? Here I am. Today this is fulfilled in your hearing. As we hear in the Gospel of Luke. That day when God rules completely, when he is the light of the world, when, when living water flows out, from Temple Mount and Zion. That day is now. That day is available if you believe in me. And so again, we see this pattern. John looks at the the Jewish festivals and he shows us how these festivals, on first glance, are looking back to things that God has done in the past. And yet he's telling us that they also are oriented towards the future. They point forward to to Israel's messianic, eschatological future, a time when Messiah will come and bring the end of days and the fulfillment of all things with him. In your note sheet, three festivals in John, Passover, Tabernacles, and now Dedication. Um, Dedication. This is more commonly known to us as Hanukkah. Um, Hanukkah was the celebration of, uh, they call it the day of dedication. The reason is, is because it looks back to a time at, in Jesus' day, only 200 years before, when Antiochus Epiphanes had come from Egypt. He was a king from Egypt. He'd come, he'd taken over Jerusalem, and he had just destroyed the worship of Israel. Um, interesting. Uh, Antiochus Epiphanes, Epiphanes, that's his last name, or his title. Epiphanes is the word from which we get our word epiphany. In Greek, it means something like um, appearing or made manifest. And you might wonder, well, Antiochus made manifest. What is he making manifest? We have coins uh, from his rule in uh, the, what, about 180 uh, BC. We have coins that we found that were minted during the thir- three years that he was, uh, he was ruling. And the coins have this inscription. They say, Basilese Antiochus Theu Epiphanus. That's Greek for King Antiochus, comma, God made manifest. Antiochus comes to Jerusalem and he says, you've been looking for your God? Here I am. He says, oh, your, your temple is holy? I have a better idea. Let's do your temple the way I like to do it. Let's worship me. Um, it, it's even thought that he might have uh, taken a, a, a pig and um, sacrificed it on the holy altar in Jerusalem, which uh, would be about the most offensive thing you could possibly do um, to a Jew or to the Jewish people. And so uh, at the time, during these three years, there was a rebellion that God brings forth from the Jews, a rebellion led by a a man named Judas Maccabee and his brother Simon the priest. And these men gathered up the people of Israel and they expelled Antiochus, God made manifest, and they sent him back to Egypt packing. And the Feast of Dedication celebrates the day that Simon walks in 
And he performs all the rites of purification over the temple, cleansing it from all of the, the impurities and the um, offenses that, uh, that Antiochus had poured over it, re-sanctifying the temple, making it again holy, again a place that God can come and be with his people. So he, gets, he, he sanctifies the temple. In John 10, this is uh, verses 22 to 36 and then 38. Um, it's in your pew Bibles. It's five, page 567. And notice what John says. He says, Now it was the feast of dedication in Jerusalem, and it was winter. Uh, Hanukkah takes place around December time. Festival of Lights. And Jesus walked in the temple in Solomon's porch. Then the Jews surrounded him and said to him, How long are you going to keep us in doubt? If you're the Christ, just say it. Jesus said, answered them, I told you, and you do not believe the works that I do in my Father's name. They bear witness of me. But you don't believe because you're not my sheep, as I said to you. My sheep hear my voice and I know them, and they follow me. And I give them eternal life, and they will never perish. And no one, no one will snatch them out of my hands. My father, is given to them, my father, who has given them to me, is greater than all. And no one is able to snatch them out of my father's hand. He says this, I and my father are one. I am Jesus, Theu Epiphanus, Jesus, God made manifest. Then the Jews took up stones again to stone him, and Jesus answered them, Many good works I have shown you from my father, for which, those, for which of those good works do you stone me? The Jews answered him, saying, For a good work we do not stone you, but for blasphemy, because you, being a man, make yourself God. Jesus answered them, Is it not written in your own law, in the Torah, I said you are gods? If God called them gods, to whom the word of God came, and the scripture cannot be broken, do you say of, who, of him whom the Father sanctified and sent into the world, you are blaspheming because I said I am the Son of God? You can see how this would be a pretty exciting time for somebody to come and say, I am God made manifest. I have been sanctified by God for worship. This is the Feast of Dedication, when we celebrate the expulsion of the imposter, the blasphemer. But the thing is, after the Jews had sent Antiochus Epiphanes packing, they were left a little bit confused because they'd sent this one oppressor, and they, then another one came in just a few years later, Rome. And the Jews are looking around and they're saying, we were waiting for, for God to come and, and rule us. We're waiting for God himself to be our leader, to be our king. And it didn't happen. And then Jesus says, I and the Father are one. I am this one you've been looking for. God is now with you. God is now ruling you. I'm here. And so Hanukkah, the Feast of Dedication, is not only reminding Israel of her past, that is, when God liberated, them, uh, liberated the Jews from Antiochus Epiphanes, it's looking forward to another liberation, when God himself will be the ruler, when God himself will be the, the, the fulfillment of all of Israel. And then John says, look, Jesus tells us, that's me, I'm the one. What does all this have to do with us walking out the door and celebrating Drea's birthday yesterday? You might wonder. 
What does it have to do with my company parties and um, the end of the Little League season? Or if you're a professional football team and you don't win the Super Bowl and you have a party to celebrate in, you know, the things that went right but weren't you know, perfect, what does it have to do with all of that? And I think the answer is this. I think what John's pointing out is something about feasting and celebration that's true of all feasting and celebration, not just Jewish festivals, not just uh, Passover and tabernacles, but everything we do when we get together to feast and to celebrate. You see, when we feast and celebrate, we think we're looking back in the past and saying, wow, that's awesome. And when we feast to God, we say, that's awesome, God, because you did it. But what John is pointing out to us is that our feasts don't just look into the past. They look into the future. They're implicitly telling us something about the future. It explicitly reminds us of the past, but it implicitly points to hope and possibly despair about the future. We sing that song at birthday parties. Alice is getting better at it. She's tone deaf, um, which, you know... It's frustrating because uh, we were uh, hanging out with Doug and Jen, and Charlie Sue just nails it. I mean, that girl, that girl is gifted. She's like, beep, 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 beep. and I was like, "Happy birthday to you." <laughs> she's, she sounds like a robot. It breaks my heart. Aaron, Aaron thinks she's getting better, but she's she's not. <laughs> she gets it from her grandfather, who's not here. Um, yeah. But at the very end of that song, we say, "Happy birthday to you," and many more. Because, yeah, we've had this year, and it's been awesome. But aren't we looking for more? We've done so well for, in my case, 33 years. 33? 53 more? Right? The, the celebration it reminds us of the past, but it points to the future. Or if you're, you know, your company party. And, you know, guys, we had a pretty good year. No layoffs this year. That's great. Um, profits not quite where we want them. But next year, next year we can look at the things that we didn't do right, and next year is going to be better. Right? For Christians, Christmas, we're celebrating the coming of our, our God and Savior, who came once and is coming again. Right? It's, it's the past, but it's also pointing to the future. We're reminded of baby Jesus because we're looking for our coming Lord in glory. John's pointing out this fact that we need to take into account. We need to acknowledge this when we're celebrating, when we're feasting. That we're not just looking back. We are looking forward, whether we know it or not. We need to be honest about that. We need to be honest about the fact that we're looking forward. And then finally, we need to be honest about the fact that what we're looking forward to is in some ways, the same thing that Israel was looking forward to. For us Christians, we read in Revelation 19, it's called the marriage supper of the Lamb, the party to end all parties, the big celebration, the big one, the one that doesn't end. We're looking forward to another life. In fact, when we get together for birthday time, and we say, and many more, what we're really talking about is we're talking many more, and then, unfortunately, as human beings under the curse, there is death. But that's not the end. Happy birthday is really about us thinking into the future that this is going to be, this celebration that we're having now is a preview. It's a little glimpse of what happens when God's believing just are resurrected from the dead and join him for eternity. That's what your happy birthday is about. 
That's what your company party is about. Your company party is not about the profits you made this year, and hopefully you're going to get better ones next year. Your company party is about a time when there will be no more institutional rot, there will be no more embezzlement, there will be no more uh, cheating people out, there will be nothing but uh, crafting that, uh, that, that moves human life to its fulfillment. That's the end of your company party. That's where it's headed. In Luke, Jesus tells us, I say to you, I will not drink of the fruit of the vine um, until the kingdom of God comes. We're waiting for the kingdom of God to finally come in its fullness. And every time we get together and we celebrate, every time we feast together, we're getting a preview of what that will be like when a community comes together and celebrates fully, completely. Now notice that we don't do that. And imagine what it would be like if we did. Imagine what it would be like if our conviction about the marriage supper of the Lamb infused every single feast and celebration that we take place, that takes place in our lives throughout the year. Not just Christmas and Easter, and even those I feel like we, we totally miss the boat sometimes. I mean, presents? Who came up with that? It was the Europeans. I just, I mean... I do like the presents, so I don't want to get rid of them. The point is, though, it can... It can, it can Make us miss what this is about. Imagine what it would be like if every birthday was a celebration of what is to come when God comes in his glory. So I, uh, in your note sheet there, answer two to the question, how do we feast Christianly? The answer is we need to recognize that all Christian feasting and celebration points to Christ and the marriage supper of the Lamb. All of it. Not just the stuff that happens when we do, I love Thanksgiving feast, it is great, we're going to continue doing it. Not going to stop that. But it's not just Thanksgiving feast at Coast Bible Church in the, in, in the gym. It's every feast, every celebration. What can we do to make this present to our minds? We, we are forgetful people. Number one, commence with prayer. Um, set in the way that we invoke a, a feast, a celebration, the fact that this is God's. And acknowledge in prayer that this is a preview of what God is going to give us for all time. That's critical. And it doesn't matter if it's your, you know, end-of-the-year baseball pizza party. Number two, connect what is happening now to the future. We don't uh, simply pray and then be done with it, while we're, while we're feasting and celebrating together, let us speak to one another about how this moment, when we're feasting and celebrating, having an awesome time, how this is a preview, how this is showing us what the future looks like when Jesus comes in his glory. And I think the last one is the hardest one. It's really the hardest one for me. It's, you know, you're in a, you're at a party or a celebration for something and you're aware that not everybody there shares your convictions about Jesus. Uh, they're cool with you doing whatever it is you want to do on Sunday. But let's not, let's, let's keep that there. I challenge you, when you're feasting, when you're celebrating, when you're enjoying the best that life has to offer, when you're with your friends, your family, um, your co-workers, whomever it is, when you're there and you're, you're, just in the moment, feasting together and celebrating things that have happened in the past. That is your chance to witness 
to say this, this best that life has to offer, this is the future, man. You're living it right now. Don't let this be the end. Get on board with something that's never going to quit. That's hard to do. Because we've ingrained in our minds that this is church and out there is party time. Our goal is to recognize that the two are the same thing and to make what parties and feasts and celebrations happen out there fully infused with the knowledge and the expectation of the marriage supper of the Lamb when God draws his people to himself and rules from his throne in Zion. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, this people confesses now our future in you. You, God, who sent your Son, from whose hand no one can snatch us. You've set our future in stone. God, we are going to be with you, and we confess that, and we praise you for it. Father, Son, and Spirit, we are yours, and you are our future. God, give us the joy of that knowledge. Fill our hearts with it and let it spill out into our celebrations and our feasts outside these walls. God, let us be people who see that our celebration is not just about the past, but it is about your future for us. God, we thank you for your son, the bread of life, the font of living water, the light of the world, God made manifest. We thank you that he guarantees us a future, that this birthday truly will have many, many more. In his name we pray, amen.